Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Keegan Russo. Keegan Russo is president of North America Local for Fleet Corps. Keegan leads the North America Local Fleet Card line of business, which has 50,000 businesses under the Fuelman and Comdata MasterCard brands. He joined Fleet Corps in 2019. Before his current role, Keegan led the go-to-market strategy and product for the local business. Prior to Fleet Corps, he was a strategy and marketing leader at various fintech startups, a management consultant at McKinsey & Company, and started his career at MBNA Corp. He received his JD from Boston College Law School and his BA from Colby College. Keegan, my friend, welcome to the show. I'm so excited. This is an episode 10 years in the making. It seems like we've known each other for longer than that, but I'm really excited to get to chat with you on the record. Likewise, Jared. I remember pretty vividly getting the chance to sit next to you in those cubes and walled offices in Atlanta. And I learned a lot from you just on the Fridays that we sat around and we're in the same office. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we were able to get back together and talk about one of my favorite topics. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Likewise. So let's just dive right in. So what in your mind is innovation? Innovation is really a three-part formula for me. First, it's cultivating a deep understanding of a problem. Second, creatively solving in a way that generates value for the customer and and organization. Mm -hmm. And third, engineering a way to implement the idea by effectively leveraging your organizational capabilities and and available resources. Mm -hmm. And it's really that combination of those three things together that I, I think is truly innovation. So let's go through that. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. The deep understanding. What does that look like? When we talk about depth, you can take that in a lot of different directions, but what's the difference between a shallow understanding of something and deep understanding? Well, I think part of it is being open to a diverse set of views, sometimes conflicting with what your ingoing hypothesis might be. Mm-hmm. I think that it's looking at the problem from various different stakeholder angles. You know, the way I think of it, so the first three things I do in any new role mm-hmm. is I listen to as many interactions with customers as I possibly can to hear what they're saying, kind of like where they're feeling their pain, what problems they're trying to solve, what solve for with ours and, and other products. Mm-hmm. Then I'll go and I'll find the most knowledgeable person in the finance function, right? Hmm. And I'll talk to the person in the finance function and I'll spend as much time with them as it takes to be able to describe the way we generate value as a company in in great detail. Hmm. And then I always go and I interview my team and other internal stakeholders to hear about what's working for them, what they're excited about, what we failed to deliver in the past and why. And I I do that because it really helps me get a good sense of what the real problems are, what the urgency is behind it, what our capabilities are in being able to actually address those problems mm-hmm. and get a good sense of, you know, relative to all the other things we have to prioritize, you know, how much does this move the needle in terms of driving value for the company and the customer? And so I think within that, it's making sure you're you're very curious and open to listening to not just, you know, your boss or your loudest customer, 
but really trying to source the and understand the problem from a wide range of different stakeholders. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That is depth personified in the way you kind of broke it down. So to me, it sounds like going deep is your way of getting to the reality of the situation. Right. What's really going on? Like how is value really being created and what does the organization really feel and sense and what's the real capacity of the organization for change in those three buckets? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Too often you kind of want to move fast for the sake of moving fast. And, you know, there is this perception of innovation equals speed to market. And while that can be really important and, and you want to make sure that you're, you're moving quickly, I found many times the problem we think we're trying to solve mm-hmm. is only part of the underlying customer pain or process breaking point. Right. And doing the legwork up front and making sure you're finding the, the experts in the room and all the, the right sources will help you go into innovation on a path that's least likely to lead to dead end. Mm, right, right. You're barking up all the right trees and you're getting a feel for what direction to point your change management efforts in. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned creative solutions in your definition. What makes creativity integral to innovation from a solution standpoint? So I chose that word pretty specifically mm-hmm. because I've been in a handful of situations where I'm not the most technically proficient person in the room, pretty much every room I go into. <laughs> I'm often not the deepest subject matter expert, but I do come from a varied school of problem solving. Mm-hmm. And you run into situations where the same set of tools are being applied to solve the same problem and get the same result. Mm-hmm. If you're having to resolve a problem that people have tried to solve in the past, indicates that maybe you should try something else. An example of this would be a recent project we had. I lead the fuel man and local fleet card business at Fleet Corps. And we have 50,000 customers who use our fuel card product uh, for various reasons, Mm -hmm. but mainly to control their fuel expense. Super relevant right now with fuel prices the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we've always known since we've been doing this since 1985 on the fuel man side and, and longer on the com data side is there's a huge bucket of spend out there that our customers with fleets have around maintenance. And we've tried to solve that problem in similar ways, kind of every three to five years with the same result. We just haven't been able to capture that spend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I bring that up because we just recently launched a partnership with a, with a company called Cardvise to white label a solution that, is able to plug seamlessly into our customer's account management platform. Right. So that it appears part of their fleet account. It has the ability to set controls and different workflows for approval. Oh, wow. And it's a mobile experience as well for the driver, right? And the problem that we've traditionally had is there hasn't been a solution for both the account manager and the approver of maintenance expense and the driver. Right. We've been able to approach this problem a little bit differently in the past because we stepped back we didn't start with how do we use our fuel card to make sure customers change their behavior and that they use their maintenance spend on our fuel card. Mm-hmm. We actually said, okay, like how can we create an experience that alleviates all sorts of pain points that the customer has around maintenance? We went out and found out what all of those were. We stepped back and said, hey, what internally can we build? What capabilities do we have? 
what partners are there out there that we can potentially leverage their expertise in and how can we combine it all together? We launched this program just actually last week. Oh, wow. And in the first week, we've had over 100 customers raise their hand, sign up. You know, it's small for out of a 50,000 customer base, but they've already loaded over 1,000 vehicles and started using the thing all the way through. So we actually have, oh, wow. you know, at this point, just in the first couple of days, dozens of transactions coming through from these fleets who are, who are in pilot with us. And, you know, I have really high hopes that we finally crack the code on this thing by really just stepping back and reevaluating what we were trying to solve and what tools we had at our disposal. Yeah. Oh man, that's a perfect example of a creative solution because you did have to take a step back and sort of take things from a customer perspective and open the question up to how can we alleviate this pain point versus how can we take what we've already got on the shelf and try to compete in this space? Yeah, it's creative, right? And Mm -hmm. I think the definition of creative can be debated, but what I didn't say was, you know, like we didn't invent something new in that. Right. We went and we found someone who was already providing a very, very similar platform and product and service. And we plugged it in, in a new way with a new set of customers and provided a little bit different experience. Yep. I think that sometimes innovation, the way we talk about it, we focus a lot on inventing things or using new technology. And that, that doesn't always have to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you said you come from a pretty varied problem-solving school. What in your background do you think allows you to kind of be able to take that creative view of the problem, whereas so many tend to not do that? I think my profile is probably not too dissimilar. Like there are are other folks who have a similar background. I, Mm -hmm. I think I came from starting with my parents who were both educators who, you know, were perfectly okay with me going up and you know, reading everything in the library from a pretty early age, mm. you know, I think that helped develop some skills like empathy and just being able to think about things through the eyes of other people. I went to liberal arts college where I had to take you know, alongside math. I had to take history. I had to take political science. I had to take languages and study abroad and be exposed to mm. different cultures and, and, and ways of thinking. I went to law school, which is different from Jared and I. We, we work together at, at McKinsey, yep. where the most typical profile is, is folks who have come from an MBA background. And I've never used my law degree for practicing the law. <laughs> it does give you a pretty distinct problem-solving style. Um, and then I was able to get the crash course in your more typical MBA-style problem-solving with McKinsey. So. I feel like I'm able to come at problems uh, a lot of different angles and use empathy and analogies from a wide ranging set of interests yeah. to bring to bear on, on solving a problem. And, and it certainly helped me throughout my career to do so. Hmm. So I think a couple of things that come to light as you kind of describe that one is that you see that as part of your problem solving toolkit that you see having read a lot as a child and that you see tools like empathy as part of a problem solving toolkit. That in and of itself, I think, is a unique perspective on those things that gives you an angle on a problem that reinforces the fact that you take a different view of things and you know come at things from a slightly different angle. And your law background, I can only imagine I did not go to law school. No one is... Great decision, Jared. No one is upset about that, including every law school in the country. 
I can only imagine the types of classes you took, the training you you had was different from my engineering background and different from undergraduate business background or things like that. But what people don't always do with that is call it a problem solving skill set. You know what I mean? And so I think your ability to sort of see the fundamental elements of your experience and then apply them to problems is what makes you creative. And other people could have the same background, but not see those things as part of their problem solving toolkit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a traditionally creative. I've run departments before, and that's one of the first places where I raise my hand and I'm like, I am going to make sure that we get the best creative resources and talent that we possibly can. And I'll have opinions, but I'm not going to sit around and come up with amazing marketing campaigns. But I am willing to look at a problem in a variety of different ways. And I think it helps get you to better outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think having that broader definition of creativity is a cornerstone of innovation, because if it's just the clever marketing ad or the clever piece of copy or the new molecule or whatever, that doesn't create a foundation for innovation. It leaves some gaps. So tell me about the engineering element of the definition. So, you know, engineering something for implementation. Yeah, so I think the implementation, I think, is often disassociated with innovation. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes viewed as the dirty work for the innovator. And I use the word engineer, right? Because I think that striving to find an elegant way to turn an idea into value shouldn't be viewed as a dirty work, right? right? It's another very challenging and just as important aspect of innovation is, is being creative. Yeah. And I do think that a lot of times we treat them as two different disciplines. And then you have a lot of great ideas without the value that's attached to them. Or your great idea comes with a caveat that it's completely not feasible. Right. Right. So the innovation doesn't actually come to fruition. Right. Again, that's not super helpful for anyone. Right. Right. So one of my things is this idea of a chief innovation officer or an innovation department or, you know, people with innovation in their title. It's just it's kind of baffling to me because to me, innovation is something that existed thousands of years ago. Right. I mean, somebody created the wheel. There wasn't a chief innovation officer around to manage (laughs) that process. And so to me, it's a humanistic kind of thing. And to label person A as an innovator or the people early in the process as innovators implicitly labels people further downstream in the process as not innovators. And to your point, nothing could be further from the truth. It's that full range of all the way through implementation that creates innovation. That's interesting. We're talking through this, right? And then just yeah. the light bulb went off a little bit because you know I pay pretty close attention to my team's employee engagement scores. And you know, one of the things I was a little surprised to see was this perception that, you know, here at Fleet Corps, we're not particularly innovative. Mm. And in my mind, I can point to 10 or 15 different things that we've accomplished in the last two years that I would say are highly innovative and that my team has actually helped execute. Right. But I think that a lot of times we do get stuck in that mindset because my direct team was more integral in getting the concept implemented 
they're not as tuned in to kind of thinking of themselves as being part of that innovation process. And mm. so we've launched a pilot for this electric vehicle fleet payment solution. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. As kind of fuel cards transition over the next 20, you know, probably 30 years towards an electrified fleet for right. commercial vehicles, we're really helping define the market for the payment. Right. How commercial fleets pay for electric vehicles and working through problems like what happens when 80% of your fleet's fueling or charging happens at home? Mm. How do you reimburse your employees for that? How do you calculate how much you should? And so we're at the forefront of working through some of these really innovative solutions and working hand in hand with some of our large customers to really define what the next 30 years of EV fleet payments are going to look like. Right. And yet I think our team still struggles to identify their work and role in that program as true innovation. Oh, yeah. I can't think of a better example or definition of something that's innovative than that. I think the other part of it is internal innovation often gets, so somehow entrepreneurial became the definition or the gold standard for innovative. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't found a company and raise a series and do all these other things, then it's not innovative. If it came from a big company with a history, that's not innovation. It can't be innovation. Innovation doesn't come from Fleet Corps. It doesn't come from Procter & Gamble. It doesn't come from Coca-Cola. It comes from Company X that just got founded two minutes ago and raised money on an idea. Yep. That's the kind of pervading definition of innovation. And so I, I can see how people who are doing innovative work inside of large established institutions could start to not see that as innovative because that's not what the media and society is saying is innovative right now. I actually have an early career story on that <laughs> as I was kind of preparing for this and thinking back about innovation where I think it's absolutely true that kind of internal innovation has suffers from a little bit of a marketing problem. So yeah. my, my <laughs> first job out of college was with a great company, MBNA Corporation, and I was in a management development program in Wilmington, Delaware. Mm -hmm. And it was, we were a group of about 25 early career. You know, the majority of us were, were just out of college. And we had a ton of exposure to the executive leadership of the company. And one of the things that they would do is often stop us in the hallway and ask us how a particular part of the business was performing mm. and what the most recent kind of KPIs were how much, what were our balances outstanding? What was our loss rate in the month prior? And we had these recurring meetings where we were underprepared, mm -hmm. where it was exposed a little bit that, you know, the whole group wasn't ready to answer those questions. Right. And we were told time and time again, like, hey, if one of you doesn't know the answer to this, all of you don't. Huh. So I started basically kind of reaching out to every business unit and getting on their distribution list for all of their daily report. And then I thought I was really clever. <laughs> I would get nine or 10 of these reports in the morning. And then I created this master document dashboard, really, that linked to all of the different reports for the businesses that pulled out all the key KPIs. Nice. And it was one of those programs where you'd go into a room with a, an executive and they'd oftentimes be like, hey, you guys need to do better. You are the future leaders of this company. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to be approaching problems. And so you know me and 
Mm-hmm. I have a tendency to be a little tongue in cheek. So I named the report, the FLC, the future leaders of the company report and circulated within the group. And, <laughs> and we got better. We had the report. I would publish it three to four times a week. Wow. And as a group, we got better at answering these questions. And at the end of my review, I remember it, at the end of that year, our leader of the program scored us on a bunch of dimensions and innovation was one of them. And I remember I got a middling grade for innovation yeah. and I was so frustrated. <laughs> and the feedback was, well, yeah, you put together this report and you did X, Y, and Z, but it took you half of the program to come up with this idea and implement it. Oh my goodness. Being early career and maybe not having the best grasp of professionalism, I was like, well, this program has been in existence for like 10 years and no one's ever done it. So how are you penalizing me (laughs) for taking six months to figure this thing out and pull it together? Which I hopefully I've learned to like be a little bit smarter about which battles I pick. (laughs) I think that, and, and actually it's funny, years later, I did some consulting work for the company or the company that acquired MBNA. Yeah. And one of the folks who I'd worked with originally said, hey, you know that FLC report <laughs> that someone in management development created all those years back? It has like a distribution of like 1,500 people and they automated it and it's still used throughout the company today. And <laughs> I just started laughing and I told them like, I was familiar with the report and, and I remember they, they said, so we've never been able to figure out what does FLC stand for? And so this thing like kind of had a life of its own. And I, you know, I was proud of it. But I think it like it shows you like, internal innovation can make a difference and make people's lives easier. And even yes. if it's a small, silly thing like this, I feel like it doesn't always get recognized as pure, quote unquote, innovation. Yeah, no, that's a great example. Number one of underappreciated internal innovation. And number two, Listeners just learned a, a lot about you. That is you in a nutshell right there. That's a great story. I think the the element of it that jumps out at me is that it was the building block for something. And so many times when we are looking at something and deciding whether or not it's innovative, we want to look at it and go, okay, well, this could be automated. This could be this. This could be that. This could be this other thing. You know, here are the five ways you could make it better. But you solved a problem in the moment with the version that you created. And it inspired other people to build on it because it added value. And the solution you engineered was relevant enough and based on a deep enough understanding that it inspired other people to build on it. Yeah, you really tied that up in a bow nicely, Jared. (laughs) Bringing it back to the kind of the three-part formula. It was well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. I I learned a little bit from sitting next to a a lawyer for a little while at McKinsey. (laughs) Yeah, too much credit there. So. We've talked a lot about what innovation is, and I've really enjoyed diving into the, your definition of what it is. What isn't innovation? Yeah. So I've touched on it a little bit, but I think what isn't innovation? Innovation isn't chasing the hot tech buzzwords of the day. Mm. I, you know, too many executives sometimes mistake the tools that can help you innovate for innovation itself. Oh, wow. The impetus might come from board pressure or fear of falling behind the competition or like an imperfect understanding of what the concepts mean Mm. or how the technology works. I think there are a lot of leaders out there who hear the tech forward ideas 
and approaches kind of in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. and confuse application of new technology with innovation. So like big data and AI and machine learning is an example for me where I worked for AI and machine learning, advanced analytics, revenue management, SaaS company. Right. And we talked to executives all day, every day that knew they needed to implement big data and machine learning and AI, right. but didn't know why or how or how to be able to translate that into value. And I, I think sometimes the buzzwords and what was in the HBR the month before can sometimes get confused with innovation. Yeah. Well, that, that's great. I love the distinction between the tools of innovation and innovation itself. I think if nothing else, I'll definitely take that away from this conversation and spend some time thinking about that. It's an important distinction and one that is less sexy in the business world for HBR and all the other publications. Yeah. It's much more fun to talk about NFTs right. than to talk about what value is it is it driving? What consumer understanding is it based on and what problem is it solving and at what cost? But it's really cool to talk about these new buzzwords. And if, as long as they're conflated with innovation, it really reduces our ability as a society to truly innovate because we're, we're kind of navel gazing at the tools yeah. and not looking out, out in the future at how they're going to drive value. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And thanks for that. That was, that was helpful. You've shared some great stories about how innovation has shaped your career from the early days all the way up to last week. So that's really cool. And uh, thank you for that. Do you have any advice for innovators? Yeah. So I would say, you know, there, there always has to be three things, right, Jared? Yes. So yes. we, we got to structure our answers in threes. That's right. Uh, I think, you know, the, <laughs> the first piece I would say, you know, be a sponge. Mm. Innovation can be inspired from unlikely places. Don't be afraid to deep dive into things you're passionate about. Mind those mm. for ideas and parallels and analogies later on. Mm-hmm. lessons learned from I got really into the economics of soccer one time and hmm. you know like money ball for soccer and based some of the models that we use to kind of predict the next best lead to call right based on kind of theories that I vaguely remembered from reading about soccer economics right so you never know huh. yeah I think the second thing is don't underestimate the value of empathy, what that can bring to innovation. Oh. Don't be shy or feel bad about the fact that you spend your free time reading fiction and you know, books from a diverse set of authors. That sort of thing helps. Mm-hmm. Right? It helps you put yourself in the shoes of others, including your customers and the people on your team and, and other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third thing would be sweat the small stuff, attention to detail and thinking through the execution plan and how to actually get to value is often the biggest gap between a good idea and innovation. Mm. And it's not the sexiest work, but you can't have real change or innovation without that last part. Mm. So true. Man, so much to unpack there. The value of empathy, my firm our three core values are kindness, empathy, and joy. And we try to play that out in innovation work and diversity work, all sorts of things. But talking about it in terms of understanding the value of it, I think is so important because when people value something, they protect it. 
they use it, they, you know, bring it to bear in, in different situations. And so I think the way you frame that around value is really astute because it, it allows people to uh, think about it differently, which will have them operate differently around that. So thanks for that. Yeah, you know, I try to think of myself as very rational actor. So if I have to justify why I'd rather curl up with the Lord of the Rings for the 10th time, as opposed to <laughs> reading a book on the payments industry, I will figure out a way to uh, justify that in my mind. <laughs> Thanks for validating that for me. There you go. Any, anything, any, any way I can be helpful, you know, I'm always happy to help. Keegan, it has been unsurprisingly helpful, insightful, and fun as usual, as were our Fridays at McKinsey and every other conversation we have. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and your time with me and our listeners today. I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity, Jared, and let's, uh, let's make sure we get together again soon. All right. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means.